There's a, a great phrase in that second song, or a third song that Michael led us through, the, the one that was the hymn, um, towards the end, after we made all those proclamations and statements about God's character and nature, it was whatever will befall. Whatever comes along, whatever may throw you off track, as Michael referred to in the beginning of the service, we do serve a God of second chances. Amen? How great is that, that we have a God whose mercies are new every morning. That kind of sets us up with that thought of where we're going this morning in the sense that God really does give us new opportunities, even when we feel like we've totally messed things up. We're going to be looking at Genesis 25 this morning, as you might expect, because we're in this E2E study. If you're new to New Hope, first of all, welcome. But there's a little booklet you can pick up, by the way, this morning. It's out in the atrium. It's free. Um, it's simply E2E Book 3, and it's guiding us through the study that we're going through. You can pick one of those up on your way out this morning. But what you're going to find in Genesis 25 this morning is we're going to look at an individual who had lots of opportunity before him but absolutely blew it, and we're going to start out with Hebrews because Hebrews is going to set us up this morning. So before we get into Genesis 25, I'm going to ask you to go to Hebrews chapter 12, but before you do that, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every single soul that is in this building right now and for every single soul that is dialed in and watching church through broadcast through the virtual programming. Thank you that we can be together as a church family. And we can study your word, and we can praise you, and we can grow, and we can learn more about who we are and who you are. So we pray that you would go before us this morning, and that you would open up our hearts and our eyes and our minds, allow us to set aside the distractions of this past week and maybe even what happened this morning, and focus on you and what you want to communicate to us this morning. We pray for that in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. So the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, if you haven't turned there yet, maybe you've got it electronically or you've got a hard copy, maybe you didn't bring a Bible with you at all, there's some in the chair racks in front of you in the seats, you can do it that way or watch on the screen, but we're starting in Hebrews 12, and the writer of Hebrews speaks specifically of an obligation to believers. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, you're not just at church, but you're one with God. You understand what it is to be in relationship with Him. Jesus died for your sins and forgave you of your sins. That's who this writer is speaking to this morning when he says this in Hebrews 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. That's the story we're going to go with this morning, the story of Esau. But first, before we do that, I need to break down that statement for you that we just looked at, because it really helps us understand what's going on in the background with Esau. Let's go back to that verse first in verse 14, and it said, "'Pursue peace with all men.'" and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That word sanctification is one I especially want to pay attention to because when he says no one's going to see the Lord without that, you really want to make sure you understand what in the world is he talking about. Well, there's a word in your notes this morning, and, and the word, that, a Greek word, you'll see it on the screen as well, or maybe you downloaded the notes, it's this word hagiosmos. Now, hagios, shorter version, is holy. 
When God sees you this morning, He sees you as hagias, if you are in Jesus Christ. You may not feel holy this morning. Based on what you did this last week, you may look at yourself and say, I'm anything but holy right now. But if you are in Jesus, because Jesus forgave you of your sins, you didn't earn it. God sees you as holy this morning. Even if you don't feel like it, if you are in Jesus this morning and you know that God sees you as holy, would you say amen right now? Okay, you understand that. But that's not the word we're looking at right there. The word we're looking at is hagiosmos, and there's something else going on. Hagios is to be seen as holy in the way that God sees you right now. But hagiosmos, the word that's in your notes, this is purification. It's talking about a process or the action of it. Now, at first glance, when you look at that verse through that lens and say, well, there's a process to it, it may look like if I pursue peace and I pursue holiness, then I'm going to earn salvation. That's not what he's talking about because we know we don't earn salvation. It's the gift of God. So we don't earn it. So what is he talking about? Well, when it comes to sanctification, you need to understand there's two forms of sanctification spoken of in the New Testament. And the first one relates to you definitely. If you just said amen a moment ago, you understand that God sees you as holy. That's positional sanctification. Your position in Christ, God sees you as holy. Positional sanctification. If you're a believer, you already have that. You did not earn it. It's the gift of God. A person who is not in Jesus Christ cannot achieve that. They can't reach positional holiness unless they're in Jesus and Jesus has forgiven them of their sins. Only a believer has that capacity or that position, if you will. But here's the second component. There's positional sanctification, and then there's practical sanctification. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. When he says, pursue that, and he's talking about holiness in your daily living, the choices that you make, the decisions about what you do throughout the course of a week, how you behave, pursue that. In other words, the opposite of pursuing bad things would be pursuing the fruits of the Spirit in your life. And the fruits of the Spirit in your life, like love, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, meekness, self-control. We'll come back to that thought in just a moment. So let me sum it up for you this way. Because of Jesus... And because of what he did for you, you are counted this morning as righteous. God sees you as holy. So positionally, the expectation is that we will live like that. In other words, our practice will match our position. You're in God. He sees you as holy. He expects you to behave as those who are holy. He says especially pursue the sanctification. The writer of Hebrews says that. And if, if you're a guy who likes to hunt or a woman who likes to hunt, you go in the woods, you know what it is to pursue your prey. That's the mindset behind this. Pursue it, hunt it, chase it down, go after it. But then he amplifies it by saying, but if you don't, there's results. Verse 15. Verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Now understand, the writer of Hebrews is speaking to the church. And he says, see to it. That's the word episcopeo. Episcopeo is in your notes also this morning. And that's where we get the root of the word episcopal, the episcopal church, the overseer. What are you overseeing? Well, your own life and the lives of the people that you're in community with. So you oversee your own behavior, 
and you oversee the lives of the people that you're doing life with to the degree that you're watching for these things that he just brought up, these three stages. So let me show them to you again. Number one, that no one comes short of the grace of God. Number two, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. Number three, that there be no immoral or godless person. How do I understand those? Understand it this way. If you're in Jesus already, you haven't missed the grace of God. God gave you grace. So how could I fall short or come short of the grace of God? That's talking about failing to progress forward. In other words, someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, and their mindset becomes, I got my ticket punched. I am destined for heaven. And they become really good with that and become stagnant and never progress forward. And they're failing to progress forward in faith. And so they're falling short. How does that happen? Well, sometimes it's through laziness. But that's not what's being spoken of here. That's not the context here. He's speaking of someone who fails to apprehend grace when? When negative circumstances come into their life. They fail to go to the throne of grace in the time of their need. Hebrews 4.16, look at the end of the screen. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So a person going through really hard times can come to one of two conclusions. Either need to go to God and ask Him for more grace to endure this, or they can allow bitterness to take over. And bitterness will beget bitterness. It will produce more bitterness, and it affects others. And he says that many would be defiled. How does that happen? Well, the failure to seek God's grace during this time of trial, it results in bitterness in someone's life. And bitterness amplifies, and bitterness eventually results in defiling other people because the effects of bitterness are never just localized to one person. It can poison an entire community. And then there was that third part. He said that there would be no immoral or godless person like Esau, and we're going to come back to that because it's part of this story. This component is, don't be like Esau. Don't do what happened to him. So let's dive into this story about Esau in Genesis 25. And if you haven't opened your Bible yet, go ahead and do that. I'll just give you a little background if you weren't here last week. Abraham made sure that his son Isaac was going to have a bride. And so they, they arranged for a marriage, and Isaac got Rebekah. Rebekah moves to where Isaac's living, and they're in the Abrahamic empire at this point. And they're living in the promised land, and they're about to expand as a family. But they don't know it because a long time goes by before they have any children. So we're told this in verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived, but the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Understand, they've been married 20 years by this point in time. Last time we saw them, they were just young people. But 20 years have gone by, and they've had no children. And just like Abraham and Sarah having no children, they started thinking, what's going on? And so Isaac prays to God. God blesses them, and suddenly she's expecting. But even though she's never carried a baby before, she knows something is not normal about this pregnancy. She's been in relationship with other women. She's seen other women carrying children, but she knows they didn't go through what she's going through. 
because there's this warring going on within her. The passage actually says the babies were struggling within her. The Hebrew word is ratzatz, and it actually means to pound on each other. So the babies are bruising each other intentionally is the implication of what's going on here. So she goes to God and says, this is not normal. What's going on here? Verse 23, then the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body. That sounds like a rough pregnancy, right? And one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So you got twins in the womb who are duking it out. Even in the womb, God knew what their personality was and what the issues were. Don't let anyone ever tell you that a baby in the womb is just a piece of tissue. It is a real person, real personalities. Oh, okay, go ahead, yeah. So we have real babies with real personalities who are at war with each other in the womb, and God knows their personalities, and he says, here's what's going on, Rebecca. This is a real issue. Verse 24, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment. Well, he sounds beautiful, doesn't he? <laughs> and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Uh, what can you say when a new mom is holding her baby and one of them's beautiful and one's not so much? Like, wow, that's a nice red carpet you got there. Right? We, we see this child that's covered with not just red skin, but he's red hair and it amplifies that he's hairy all over. And this red tone to his skin earned him a nickname. His name Esau actually means kind of ruddy or reddish. There's only one other person in the Bible referred to that way, and that's David, King David. But this, this becomes his nickname eventually. Verse 27 says, When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Uh, Rich writes about this this week, Pastor Rich, in the E2E book that you're going to be looking at. He writes about parents playing favoritism, which is never a good thing, and I'll let you read that to learn what he wrote about that. But we come away from this little section saying, whoa, could two guys be more different? We're told that Esau works outside, not just outside, outside, but outside the family interest. See, the family interest is raising livestock and, and farming the fields. And they're, they're managing their agrarian lifestyle and they have 300 plus employees. So it's a big enterprise, but Esau has chosen to be outside the family interest and he's doing his own thing. And the Bible says he's good at it. He became a really skillful hunter, but he spends his time out in the woods. So these guys are opposite. They're opposite in their appearance. They're opposite in their character. They're opposite in their manners, in their habits. Most importantly, they're opposite in their beliefs. Check this. Even though they grow up in the same home, same mom, same dad, same grandparents, they are drastically different. Jacob is this guy who sits in quiet. We're told that he's a man of gentleness and peace. I'm picturing him listening to classical music while he's reading his culinary magazine. Okay? That is not a slam on him, it's just that's what he chooses, that's his lifestyle. But Esau, this dude who is densely hairy, 
And red-skinned and, and red-haired is painted a picture that he's like a wild man. And he's running his own program. So you've got Wall Street versus Redneck. And Redneck's driving a 4 by 4 and he decides to pull up to his brother's drive through window and ask for food while he's got the original mullet going on. Let's go to the next verse, verse 29. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. That became his nickname going forward. Edom meaning red. He's, hey, red, how you doing? So apparently what he's eating here, according to the passage that's coming up, is lentil soup. And there's an Egyptian lentil bean that's grown that's very near the border. It's still grown there today. It's really, really high in protein. And it was grown in the ancient days, like 26% protein. The only thing comparable to it in our world today is soybean. Egyptian lentil beans, when they're mixed with venison, became this really tasty dish. They had a very distinctive earthly flavor to an outdoorsman who's been out in the woods all day, coming in absolutely weak with hunger. It's very tantalizing to him. But he comes in with this exaggeration on his lips, like, I'm starving. Anybody ever said that when they were a teenager? Absolutely we have. We know what that is to use that exaggeration. Well, it's not such an exaggeration in the sense of how he said it. Many of you know that I, I really read a lot of Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum's materials, and he's a, a present-day uh, theologian who writes about ancient Hebrew history. And he's not just an expert in the Hebrew language, but he's an expert in Hebrew archaeology. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes this, the Hebrew language is a bit stronger and reads literally. Let me gulp down some of this red red. It implies an animal-like voraciousness. In rabbinic writings, this word is used for cramming food down one's throat. The author of Hebrews evaluates him to be a profane person who merely lives for the moment. So Esau's made his need known. He comes in the door and he says, this is what I need, and this is Jacob's response, verse 31. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. In other words, no soup for you. What's going on? Why that kind of a requirement? Like, empty your bank account, dude. You want any of what I'm cooking? It's going to cost you everything that you have. What's going on here? Watch Esau's response, verse 32. Esau said, behold, I am about to die. So what of what use then is the birthright to me? If you happen to have a King James Version of the Bible, it will say, what profit is it to me? And that's actually a better interpretation. What profit is it to me because your birthright could be sold. You could actually barter it. Ancient sources says it was a commodity. You could use it to your advantage if you needed to generate some cash. So his mindset is this. I'm out in the wilderness all day long. I'm climbing rocky ledges. I'm chasing after big game. My life is at risk daily. What do I need a birthright for? So the ancient sources say the birthright could be bartered and sold. Well, you need to know what's at stake here. If you're the firstborn male of the family, you automatically received a double portion of the family inheritance. So if, if your parents were going to leave you something in their will and they decided they're going to leave you as the second born $100,000, the firstborn would get $200,000. 
But the one who had the birthright also determined family investments. Are we going to put the family money into soybean or are we going to put it into barley? The one who had the birthright also determined what direction worship would take within the family. And it determined family destiny, like are we going to pick everything up and move and relocate? So let's remember what's at stake here. Let me refresh your mind on Abraham's wealth. We're told, Genesis 13, 2, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. It's Abraham Incorporated. He has money off the charts. Now, I've had lentil soup before, and it's tasty, but it's not going to change my destiny. Why exchange your future for something so ridiculously simple? A minor pleasure. Why trade your future for immediate gratification? Now, lest we dismiss his actions too easily and say, I would never do that. Are you kidding me? That's so stupid. Who would do something like that as though we're above it? Forgetting very quickly that that is actually the nature of humanity. Eve, much smarter than us, freshly created from the hand of God, decided to barter away her relationship with God so that she could have her agenda fulfilled. Eve, in the day that you eat of this fruit, I'm going to give it to you, then you get God in exchange and you know that God's been lying to you. Eve did exactly what's being described here. She trades perfect creation for a lie. Esau is trading his future for food. What did Judas do? Judas trades God for money. It was part of his agenda. Just as an aside, perhaps you didn't know this, but when Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver was the lowest price you could sell a human for on the commodity market. And that means if you were driving your cart through Jerusalem and you happened to run somebody over accidentally and you killed someone's slave, the price of a dead slave is 30 pieces of silver. That's what Judas sells God for, the wages of a dead slave. It was the biggest insult you could give to anyone. Now, for us, many of us travel this exact same path today. We exchange what could be for what we want, and we want many times immediate gratification. How did Esau do that? Well, in Esau's case, he's taking lightly the things of God. In other words, he's acting like someone who's godless in this behavior. Now, remember what the writer of Hebrews was saying. He's writing to the church, and he says, be Episcopal, watch over yourself, and watch over the people that you're in community with, and as you're doing life together, make sure that people don't do this. Look with me on the screen again, that they don't fall short of the grace of God, meaning they're not going to God in the time of need, that hard issues don't come along and cause a root of bitterness. And he had this third component, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single male. What does it mean to be a godless profaner? Well, that's someone who's trampling under the things of God. Now, lest you think you would never do that, I'm going to tell you right now, I'll just out myself, I've done that. I've done those very things. God brings opportunities my way, and because my agenda is more important, I would easily say, no, I'm not interested right now. There's conversations that I've missed. There's activities that I've not participated in simply because my agenda was more important than the thing that God, that God brought my way. 
And so we could all be guilty of that kind of an action. And that's why the writer of Hebrews is saying, watch out that you're living for God and not for the world, and don't trample on spiritual matters. Now, just a little bit of a speculation here. It's really safe to say, and I'm, I am speculating here, that I think Esau has been looking for a reason to dump this responsibility. How do I know that? Because people don't give in this easy unless they're already thinking this way. Like, I don't want to be the one determining spiritual direction for my family. I'd rather be hunting. I, I don't want to be the one determining family investments. Give me something else simpler to do. I'm just going to go for a walk in the woods. Don't ask me to make decisions. I don't want that responsibility. Now check this. Unlimited blessings are his through his birthright, but he's failing to take hold of them. And in this case, the birthright... The line of descendants that comes through this one will lead directly to Jesus. That's why it's so overwhelming that we see God speaking to Rebecca while the children are still in the womb, saying, I already know them. While they're being formed in the womb, I know their personalities. I know exactly what's going to become of them. And the older will serve the younger Rebecca because there's an issue with their personalities going on here. One's going to pursue after my ways, and one is going to reject my ways. So back to the story. Let's dive back in, because we find Jacob is an opportunist, and he knows his twin brother really, really well. So he's going to seize on Esau's weakness, and he says in verse 33, and Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. The word that's actually used here is Shabbat. He Shabbat himself. So if you read the definition, it says that he sevened himself, meaning Jacob required a witness to come into the room where he was serving him the suit and listen to his brother Esau repeat the oath seven times. Seven times, word for word, I will sell you my birthright. And then a deed was recorded and was properly put down on paper as a witness recording the transaction. Check this, church. His father is so incredibly wealthy, which means to us the family pantry was really, really big. There's so much food that this family had available to them. He could easily obtain food, but clearly he wants it now. So he lets his destiny become a bargaining chip for a light and momentary pleasure. I had individuals come to me in between the services who were at the 9 o'clock who said, it really looks like Jacob was taking advantage of his brother. I said, well, yeah. And multiple people asked me that question, and they're, they're very bothered by that reality that it looks like he actually was kind of an opportunist that was not kind to his brother. Well, maybe you don't know this, but Jacob was actually called the deceiver in Scripture, and there's a reason for that. His, it's carried on from Abraham. Remember, Abraham tried to sell his wife because Pharaoh was threatening, he thought, to kill him and tried to pass, pass her off as the sister. But Jacob comes across as the deceiver. Now, he gets his act together with God later on, just like Abraham did, but in this case, he's not acting very godly. And you see that same pattern of behavior spring up in his own son's lives when they try and 
passed off that Joseph was killed by a lion, but he really wasn't. He was just sold into slavery. That's kind of the thread that's going on here. These brothers are at war with each other. So verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. What a big heart. He threw bread in. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Remember what the writer of Hebrews said? Watch out. Watch out that you don't become like Esau. And he's writing to the church with instructions to those who belong to Christ. Watch out that there not be a profaner among you who would trample under the things of God. We are told that as believers in Jesus Christ that certain characteristics belong to us that are not common among the rest of humanity. There are things that are the gifts of the Spirit. I want you to look at the verse on the screen that describes very specifically what you have that are the fruits of the Spirit within you. Look at it again. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I do appreciate the fact that the author put the word self-control down towards the end of the list because that's difficult to hit that one. Most of us would look at the list and say, okay, I'm, I'm doing better in my relationship with Christ with love. I'm definitely doing better in my relationship with Christ in the area of joy. And yeah, peace may not be completely there, but I'm doing better with that. But by the time you get to the end of the list and you see gentleness and self-control, that's the one we got to check ourselves on. Like, how am I doing with controlling my passions and my desires. See, as followers of Jesus, what we're being told here is that you and I have an off switch. There is an off switch that's available to us. If we will ask God for grace in our time of need, if we will approach the throne of grace, God says, I'll give you strength so that you can say no. In that moment that you want to look at the thing you shouldn't look at or do the thing that you shouldn't do or have the conversation that you shouldn't have, I will be there for you so that you can say no. Hebrews 4.16, I know many of you have this as a favorite verse in your life. Look with me at this. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let me pause there and just keep that verse on the screen for a moment for you. We think we understand that word confidence as being something that says, okay, I know that when I go to God, He's going to hear me. That's not what the word confidence means in this case. That is true. God is going to hear you. But the word confidence in this case actually means bluntly or frankly, as in being specific with God. Let us draw near to God with bluntness. God, this is what I need. This is what I'm being tempted on. It's this very issue, and I'm being specific with you, God. This is what's taking me down. And when you do that, God says, you come to my throne of grace, and I'm going to give it to you. Why does he make that commitment? So that we can get a handle on our emotions, regardless of our desires and regardless of our passions. Because a person who's ruled by their appetite rather than by the Holy Spirit develops insatiable desires. And when we hear the word appetite, immediately we think of food. But it's the full gamut. 
an appetite for money, an appetite for possessions, an appetite for power, an appetite for control, pleasure in all forms, whatever form it's taking in your life. And someone who's ruled by passions, whatever that passion is, I don't know, it's different in your life than it is in mine. Whatever that passion is, it's going to give in to desire eventually. And when it does, it's not going to make wise decisions. Now, here's the hard part of that, a double whammy. Those are the very things that Satan focuses on in our life. He knows our weaknesses and he plays on our weaknesses. And if you think not, look at the 40 days of temptation with Jesus. At the weakest moment of his life, after 40 days fasting, that's when Satan shows up. And it's three things, and it's three things repeatedly. Food, money, power, food, money, power, food, money, power. You must be really hungry, Jesus. I think that I've been told that you can take stones and make them into bread. You want money? You want wealth? I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you wealth beyond measure. Power? Throw yourself off this pinnacle. I've been told that the angels will bear you up. Food, money, power. Whatever the weakness that Satan thinks it is, that's what he's going to go after. And he tried it with Jesus. Do not think he will not try it with you. And Satan knows these things, and this is what it sounds like when he comes your way. It's right there. God knows that you need it. You want it. Just take it. And he slowly slides the bowl of soup across in front of you. And God says, that's the moment when you have to come to me. Because Satan will attempt to rob and destroy you of your destiny. And he tried to send Jesus off in another direction. That is his M.O. There's a very scary component of this story. Esau grew up with Isaac for his daddy. Abraham is his grandfather. None of us can claim that legacy. Meaning, he knew about the miracles. He knew about the fulfillment. Everything that you've been studying over the weeks leading up to this, he knew about God. And he willfully turns his back on God's plan because he refused to recognize the value of what God had already given him in his relationship, and he tramples it under, treating lightly the things of God. If you will, 2022 analogy, he's trading his destiny for a cheeseburger, right? Our mind can't even connect that, but that's what he's done. You trade your destiny for a cheeseburger, and truth, church, the whole world, everything that the world offers you is a cheeseburger in comparison to your relationship with Jesus Christ. There's nothing that measures up to the value of what you have, nothing the world can give you that will compare to what Jesus is to you. You're a child of the King of Kings. You're an inheritor, the one who will receive the kingdom of God. So Esau is this massive warning in which the writers of Scripture say, don't live for lesser things. Do not set the bar low in your life. Don't be like Esau, because there's consequences. Now, we do serve the God of second chances. But there's consequences, especially if we don't deal with the bitterness issue. And Esau, just to wrap this up, did not deal with the bitterness issue in his life very well. We're told that he pleaded, he went back to his father, he tried to undo everything in tears, but there were consequences for the decisions that he had made. 
Just a little background for you to close this out. The Jews hated the Edomites for generations. The Edomites come from Esau, the Jews come from Jacob. And because the brothers were warring with each other, their descendants warred with each other. Esau is known as Edom. He's the progenitor of the Edomites. In archaeology, individuals thought that the Edomites didn't even exist, that they weren't real. They're just a, a fictional part of the Bible made up to create a story. Until 2004, when at the University of California at San Diego, there was an archaeological dig done in the Middle East, and they actually uncovered the Edomite society, civilization, and found they were a very advanced society. You can read a lot about them yourself today. They date back exactly to the time of Scripture, to the time of Esau, and they established a sophisticated society, meaning this, Esau is a real person. He's a real individual who really did walk away from God, even though God gave him massive opportunities, and he not only surrendered what could have been, meaning the line of the Jewish people through him, but also he became the progenitor of a line of people who were bitter, violent, and angry, and that was the reputation, to the degree that he's the great, 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 great grandpappy of King Herod. King Herod's not a Jew. King Herod is an Edomite. And so when the Magi show up in Jerusalem and they say to him, where's this baby who's been born King of the Jews? Herod has this visceral reaction like, not on my watch. I don't want a Jew on the throne. And so he tries to kill all the babies. The progenitor of King Herod could have been the progenitor of the line that led to Jesus all because of this bitterness took hold. For you and I today, how much more responsible are we, church, this morning when we have the whole story and we understand what Jesus has done for us and what we have been given? As believers, he gives us his guidance, and his guidance sounds like this. Don't go there. Don't look at that. Don't engage in that conversation. Don't even play with it. Don't even touch it. But this perceived need in our generation, and I don't care if you're 20 or 80, there's a reality in our generation alive on this planet today. This perceived need for immediate gratification says absolutely the opposite. It says, I want that, I want it now, and who are you to tell me any differently? And that's the great deceit of our generation, and it leads to bondage. So I simply end this morning by asking you this question. Is there a bowl of soup in your life that's trying to deal your, steal your destiny? Is, is Satan sliding something across the table in front of you? And perhaps you feel right now, sitting there today, like, it's already happened, man. My future's already been changed. Well, if, if that's true and that's where you're at this morning, I have really good news for you. There is new beginnings in Jesus Christ. He's the God of second chances. He's the God who gives us a new start. His mercies are new every morning. You can change the direction if you're determined to go before the throne of grace and say, God, I need your help in this moment. 
If you're a believer, you have that responsibility to pursue it, to hunt it down, and deal with the issues. Come before the throne of grace and say, God, I need that new beginning. I know what I did in the past. I need a second start, or a third, or a fourth, or a fifth, or a 150th. He will meet you at your point of need. I'm going to pray for you that way, but I'm going to add this component. If you're a person who has not yet met Jesus and you don't have a relationship with him and you want forgiveness of your sin and you want that new beginning, I'm going to be here at the front right after the service. I'd be honored to speak with you. And if you haven't met me yet, I'd be honored to speak, meet, meet you too. I have many people I don't get to meet on a regular basis. So I'll be here in the front. If you want to talk about the things of Jesus and forgiveness of sin, come on down. Let's have a conversation. In the meantime, let's pray. Father, for every single soul who is here, I know as we started, we would say again, we are precious to you. And because that's true, I pray, God, that the mercies that you say are new every morning, meaning the next day when I get up, you're going to be there to meet me at my point of need. But God, you've shown us today that we have to be faithful to come to you and ask for that. So whether our failures are small or are big, you have proven yourself faithful. And I pray for these individuals that are here today that they would experience that mercy that you promise. And I know it will be delivered if we just ask you for it. So God, we, we recognize we have to deal with the consequences, but we also recognize that we need the new beginning that only you can give. I pray that as we take on this day and tomorrow and next month, that we will not be too proud to come to your throne and ask you for a fresh new start. I pray this in the matchless name of Jesus that your blessings will rest heavy on us. And we ask this because he's our king. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.